All right, two passages I need you to look up today. Um, Philippians 4 is where we are in our text together. Yeah, very, very beginning of that chapter. Put your thumb in Philippians 4 and then find Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, kind of wait there for me. I'll get there in a second. As you're, <clears throat> as you're looking up those passages, let me ask you a question again. Uh, just a reminder, don't answer out loud. You'll make a fool of yourself. Um, are you a worrier? I got an audible groan out of 8 o'clock. Nothing from you folks. Are you a worthier, a worrier? Are you a stressor? Yeah. It's okay. Um, well, it's not okay, actually. I'm going to confront that today, but I understand. Um, it's very common, and no one is immune to stress and worry. The text that we're in in Philippians today is going to be really super familiar, and uh, it'll just be therapeutic to hear it again um, and very encouraging to us if it's true that worry, fear, is kind of the number one emotion without God. Um, then we need to hear these words today. Let me read verses four uh, of chapter four to the end of the paragraph. That would be verse nine. Let's read this together. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. How many of you have heard this passage before? I figured everyone would know it. Uh, most people know this passage but don't know why Paul wrote it. Uh, and I skipped verses two and three on purpose so that I could tease you up with the why. Uh, look at verses two and three and I'll tell you a very what seems like an absurd story to lead into this kind of instruction. Here's what he says in verse two. I entreat Udia. And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in, in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, stop for a second. This letter was shipped to the church in Philippi. On one Sunday morning, they, the elders crack open this letter from Paul and everybody's sitting there and he says, hey, Judea and Syntyche, get on with it. I mean, how would you feel if you're sitting in that server? Would you feel a little weird, like that's too much, Paul? I think Paul's been teasing this up, by the way, through the entire letter when he talks about behavior, demeanor towards each other, the service of each other. And here he comes right out and says it. He finally grows the courage to say there's, a tr there's trouble here. And it's between two women. He doesn't tell us what it is. He doesn't tell us what the disagreement is, but they're disagreeing on something. And uh, he brings their name up. By the way, I think Paul is pretty kind here. Um, he doesn't even tell us what the issue was that they were disagreeing about. He doesn't use his authority to go in and pick a side. He doesn't say, I think this one's right and this one's wrong. He doesn't do that. He's not critical at all of these women. In fact, the only thing he tells us about the women is good news, that they are fellow workers, they labored side by side, and they're true believers. That's what he says, all good, except there's a disagreement that he wants them to get over. And he says, um, agree in the Lord and my companion, my uh, my fellow worker, he mentions someone here, not by name, but everyone in the church would have known who he was. Maybe he was a particular elder. You help these ladies agree in the Lord. 
So somehow this issue that they were dealing with was significant enough for Paul to, to bring this up. Now, I, I uh, confess I'm not very good at counseling because this sounds like a good technique to me. If there's a problem, stop it, okay? And that, people don't go to that kind of counseling. Um, and yet it sort of feels like Paul is that blunt about, about this here. But there really is, to be honest with you, more to it that Paul is saying than just get along. But I do want to make this note, at least in our minds, um, Paul does not say, ladies, hear each other out. He, he does not say, um, hey, well, let's talk about the specifics of the disagreement. Let's find worth in either argument. He, he does not say, um, sort out your feelings. All he tells them to do is change how they think. Think differently. Um, and so that's kind of the thrust behind the instruction not to worry. In this passage that we read this morning, there are two predominant imperatives. One is to rejoice in the Lord always, and the other is to not worry. Um, and we're, gonna, we're not going to do both today. I'm going to leave the joy for next week, and we're going to talk about this anxious thing this week. Um, okay, verses 2 and 3 tell us the story behind Paul's instruction not to worry. So in essence, here's how it goes. Something has worked themselves up to such a level, this disagreement, this issue between these two ladies in this church, that Paul says, ladies, get along and don't worry about the particulars. Now, we can only imagine what the problems were, but in Paul's mind, they weren't great enough to, con, con, to uh, deal with the dissension, so he just says, agree in the Lord. Um, but I, w- I want to kind of make this really personal here, so I want to do something kind of uh, m- m- tricky. We'll see if you'll participate. I'm going to give you like 30 seconds, and I wanna write, want you to write your own verse 2 and 3 right now. I want you in your own mind to go, what would Paul write to you? about your stresses and what gets the best of you? What are the things that that are festering in your mind? If Paul was just going to write it, what would it be? If he said to Bill, he said to Alice, hey, um, about that house thing, let it go. About that job thing. About that health thing. What, what would you? What would be on your verse two and three? Whatever you find, okay, then you'd be comforted because these words that Paul wrote to that church, to that particular situation, to those particular ladies, is also applicable to us. It fits exactly the same way. The people who write statistics on stress and and worry say that there is uh, out of every row of ten of you, there's four to five of you that are highly stressed, more so than ever before. And the list is always the same. We're stressed about health and money and family and job and relationships and whatever. I mean, they're all the same. I mean, it's always been that way. So how does how does Paul's instructions come off to you? I mean, if you just heard him say, um, "Don't be anxious," would it sound insensitive? Would the apostle sound like a little bit kind of clueless? Paul, how much do you really know about how I feel about my story? How close have you been to my circumstances? How could you say that? Does it sound naive maybe at a, at a minimum? Like, hey, listen, if you got closer to this, if you had gone through what I went through, maybe you wouldn't tell me just to get on with it. Well, I can understand that if you haven't heard everything Paul has said through the entire letter of Philippians because you have to understand when he instructs, when he gives commands, it always comes through the entire narrative of everything he said. And one of his most favorite phrases throughout this letter is who we are in Christ, in the Lord. That's his favorite phrase. So based on everything that he's said so far, um, he wants us not to worry, all right? Um, In other words, you're never based on what he said to us, 
You are never independent of God's sovereignty. God causes or allows things. What are you stressed about? You're never independent of his love or his grace or his interest in you. You're never a, a, a part on your own of his power. I mean, you have it all. And so Paul says, in view of everything I've said, everything that's true for you in Christ, therefore don't worry. Does that make sense? So he has a, a better platform. It's sort of like he's counseled for chapters before he gets to the particulars of the instruction. So let me just try this out for size. Let's see how this works. If Paul commands us not to be anxious, then being anxious is what? <laughs> we never finish the word. We just go. <laughs> Do you hear that? It's like a bunch of snakes in the room. Kind of can't say it. Sin. All right. But it's kind of like the acceptable sin. This is the sin that we are all okay with because we all struggle with it. So we just kind of cut it some slack. Um, but in essence, let's just see it this way. Anxiousness truly is a momentary unbelief. That's what, that's what stress and worry is. It's a, a moment, maybe a fragment of time where you go, man, I'm lost. I don't know who's in charge. I don't know who's got me. I don't know who's going to care for me. I don't, I don't know how this is going to end. And so you set aside what you know about the gospel, what Christ is doing, and you worry. It's a momentary section of unbelief. The word anxious means to be pulled in different directions. What a great word. It's how it feels, doesn't it, to be worried and stressed. I got life, and I feel like death. I feel pulled into different places. I, have, I want peace, but all I'm overwhelmed with right now is fear. So it's like pulled in different directions. The, the word actually comes from, from a, a word that means to strangle, which, again, is a great way to describe how it feels to be in the middle of anxiety that feels like it's choking us out. That's what Paul says. He says, don't do this. Um, so because I say anxiety and worry and I see your heads all nod and because we're just going to admit it that most of us, all of us, have at, at some point struggled with this, why is it so common? And then why is it so difficult just to hear don't do it and, and get on with it? <clears throat> Let me give you a couple of challenges in, in the process here. I think that perhaps we have a trust problem. We say God's got us, but at a moment... When the fear overtakes us, we're convinced he's busy somewhere else doing something more important than me. I know God's got the power. I don't doubt God. I, I think God's all over. You just doubt his affections for you particularly or your story. Like he's not, he's not engaged with you. So you have, a, you have a problem with trusting his interest in you. There's another potential problem we have, and that is we have a submission problem. We say with our mouth, he is our king. He is our Lord, i.e., he dictates my life but we'd rather be our own king. In fact, we live like we're our own king. We're control freaks. We think we know what's best for us, and so we make decisions what's best for us. We don't even consider God. So there's moments where we have a, a submission problem, and I think there's another reason why this is difficult. There's a distortion problem. In other words, we live in a world of distortion. We live in a world, and we probably live more like the world than we dare admit. And a world that uh, kind of forms us into its image, to want what it wants, to be uh, seeking the comfort that it provides, and to stress about losing what it offers. And you don't even have to write it down. You don't even have to cognitively think it through like that. You just emote your way through those things. You find stress, and it's connected to what the world offers. You got it. That's what it is. And most of us don't dig enough to find out, is that thing, that thing, anything more than what the world offers? But there could be a distortion problem. So, if we really don't think that God is concerned with us, like he's a good God and he's great and he can do all these things, but he's got better things to do than deal with me, 
And if I prefer to control things, and I'd rather not trust in him, and, and, uh, and ultimately I'm saturated with the world, what do you think is going to be the conclusion? The only thing left with all of that is worry. The only question you have to answer is the win, because it'll happen. That's it. That's all you got left. In the Sermon on the Mount, that's the Matthew 6 passage I told you to put your thumb in for a second. Jesus talks about worry as well here. And it's interesting where he talks about it. He talks about it right after he tells his disciples and those who are following him uh, to not store up treasures here on earth. And then he has this section on do not worry. Um, why, why would he put it in that order? I think because it fits. Earthly treasures are a man-made attempt to try to avoid problems. Earthly treasures, like if I have enough, if I have more, if I get it, if I avoid it, if I have all these things, then I won't have issues. And you know this, those of you who can finance more um, opportunities than anybody else, when you have more things to avoid the problems, what do you stress about? More things. People who have a lot worry about a lot. It doesn't go away with stuff. Treasures don't fix the problems. They reveal more exposure to us. Um, so Jesus commands us not to worry as well. But the great part about chapter 6 of Matthew is Jesus tells us the why. So if you go to Matthew chapter 6, let's, let's do this. One writer kind of laid it out as arguments that Jesus makes uh, to fight against worry. So let's just use that. Um, let's start in verse 25. This is the argument of priorities. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Okay, uh, Jesus mentions in this text something that probably doesn't cross our minds because we don't worry about food or drink or clothing. But to them, the treasure was that kind of there, you know, um, in their world. So let's stop for a second. Before you go, well, I don't have an issue because I don't have a problem with those worries. What would Jesus write to you if you were sitting on the hill? If you were out there and Jesus was beginning his very first sermon ever and he says, don't worry, church or people, about your life, what would he say that would hit your target? Would he say your career, your 401, your retirement? Would he say your worth in your job and your employment? Would he, would he talk about the house? What would he say? It's fascinating to me that after 2,000 years, um, we still stress about the wrong priorities. We still have it out of order. What Jesus is saying is that your life is more important than things. And that's true, isn't it? All our world does at any phase of the world's life is offer you um, this life about things. You can have this thing and you will find life. But you know this. If you've done it long enough, uh, it doesn't deliver. And Jesus simply says the obvious, life is more important than that, so get your priorities right. It's more important. Here's the other argument he makes in verses 26, and we're going to skip to 28 and, and read through 30. Um, it's the argument of the Father's provision. Verse 26 says this, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your, father, your heavenly Father feeds them. Now, this is the key phrase I want you to remember. Are you not more valuable than they? 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lily of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Basically what Jesus says is the Father provides. You're, you're worried about what God gives 
And he provides, and he uses something so absurd to make the point. Look at the birds and look at the grass. Animals and plants. And somehow he makes a connection of God caring for these least of things to make you think about how valuable you are to him and say, what are you worried about? What are you stressed about? If God provides for them, aren't you convinced not to worry when, when you consider that he is your father? The birds and the flowers don't have a personal relationship to the Father through Jesus. You do. You were shaped in his image, not them. You were loved by God before the foundations of the world. You were the target of his affections when he left heaven and took on flesh to go to the cross willing to bear your sin. You are the object of his affection, not grass, not plants, not birds. It's so absurd, the illustration, to make you go, go oh, what was I talking about? Well, I shouldn't even open my mouth. I shouldn't be worried right now. And so it's, a, it's an argument of the Father's provision, and he simply says, aren't you more valuable than they? What's the church say? What do we say? Yeah, yeah, of course. There's another argument in verse 27. It's the argument of logic. He says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? This is the common sense part of the sermon. Jesus simply says, what good does worry do you? And you know what worry does. It does absolutely no good. Absolutely no good whatsoever. My wife is kind of a health nut. Um, I've told you this before. Um, we couldn't be more polar opposite. She is disciplined. Um, she eats like perfect. Uh, she never quits, and I eat like a 10-year-old. Um, and I'm happier for it, by the way. So... <laughs> But I asked her, I said, honey, because every time she's talking to people about their health, there's a question that comes up for people who care for others, and they are asking questions about stressors, like, what are you worried about, right? What are you thinking about? And she mentions a couple things, and those of you who are doctors or people in the medical field, you can tell me if I'm lying or if she's lying ultimately, but things that she mentioned that stress causes, depression and anxiety, weight problems, autoimmune diseases, skin conditions, reproductive issues, pain, heart disease, digestive problems, sleep problems, cognitive and memory problems. Am I close? <laughs> Dr. Hill, am I close? Okay, I'm getting a nod from the doctors. So listen, I'm certain that's not exhaustive. Worry does nothing but ruin you. It's the logical argument that Jesus says. Tell me what it does for you. Just tell me. It does nothing. The University of Wisconsin, by the way, again, a secular writing, said that 40% of things that people worry about never happens, so it's just fictitious. 30% of things that people worry about are things from the past that they can't do anything about now, but they're worried about what happened. And 20-some, 22, 24% of things are petty. They don't even merit the level of worry. Now, this is a secular article that's left a little room for legitimate worry, but I would just suggest if they knew more about their creator, they might end up with zero on the list. So Jesus says, um, worry doesn't work, so don't do it. Let me give you another argument, the argument of faith, verses 31 and 32. Uh, Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Um, the word for Gentiles, I don't want to be insensitive, but it's true. The word for Gentiles is pagan. It's a word used for those who don't know God. So he simply says that when we are worrying, we're behaving as if we don't believe. 
For that moment, we're, we're suggesting somehow that all the gospel, all the goodness, all the character of God, all his provisions is somehow out the window and I've forgotten the whole thing and I'm left to my own devices to sort out my issues. Um, and if you compare your life and what you know honestly about God and what he's promised you and you compare your life to an unbeliever, you know how absurd this is. Because unbelievers only have worry. And, and I don't want them to worry, but they should worry. If they, if they think there is no God, then they have to navigate their life of sin. How do they answer that question? It happens. You hear people talk about this all the time. The void, the God void. They don't know it's a God void. There's an emptiness. They're trying to fill. And you know, Solomon, the king, he tried to fill it with everything. And our world tries to fill the hole with everything. Will the void go away if I do this? If I have that? If I smoke this? If I get that person? They just try to fill this thing up. And what happens when you do that and it doesn't solve the problem is you're more stressed and more dark than you ever were before you started. This, this reality is, is true for those who don't know Christ and how stressful it is to go after things to solve the problem only to experience the failure of that. To worry as a Christian really might be the greatest example of anti-God thinking there is. You and I, if you believe and confess Christ Jesus as your Lord, have absolutely nothing to worry about other than, key, some false God failing you and I will tell you that's a better thing. If you go and put your hope in something that wasn't meant to deliver, the fact that God allows you to experience the, the disappointment of that is good because it drives you back to the king. That's the only thing you got to worry on. If you're living in some sense of the world and loving the way the world does it or thinking the world the world does and it never finishes for you, well then say thank you to God because that's the way to lead you back home. Here's the reality of it. Our lives are hidden in Christ with Christ in God. That's what Paul tells in Colossians 3. Okay, one more argument, or a couple more arguments. The argument of relationship, verse 32. I didn't finish this verse on purpose, but here's what he says. Um, Gentiles, seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Um, here's why you don't worry. Because your life is personal for God. You know who invented fatherhood? He did. I don't care who you are in here. You could be the best dad the planet has ever known. You fall so far short of the fatherhood of God. The purest, greatest motives with the most power to deliver at every circumstance, your father in heaven. He's a good father. He's committed to you. He is compassionate for you. He knows you and he's precise in what he does and he's always gracious in how he treats us. That is our father in heaven. We are his children he is the perfect father. Let me give you one last argument why you shouldn't worry. It is the argument of speculation, verses 33 and 34. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is again a, a final kind of common sense argument is that you don't know the future. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. So worrying and speculating its outcome is a waste of time. The, the honesty of Jesus is pretty profound here. He says, you're going to have trouble. Diff different versions say each day has trouble of its own. One says today's trouble is enough for today. Uh, and that's all true. You're going to have trouble. What you don't know is the what and the when. You just don't, it's going to come. 
You don't know what kind, and you don't know what time or how long it will last. And so Jesus basically says, then it makes no sense to worry about its coming. Don't look ahead. Don't carry it forward is the point of that. Um, leave tomorrow alone. God will be God tomorrow when his sovereignty allows whatever it is that he sees fit for you. Does that make sense? So that's, that's almost enough. That, that is the why. Go back to Philippians now. Philippians chapter 4. And now we get to see Paul talking about the same commandment not to worry, but now he gives us the how. So if you're one of those people, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready to go, I'm ready not to worry, there's some things that he gives us real practically here that will help us. Look at verses 6 and 7. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The antidote for worry is prayer. I didn't say it. It might sound too simple for you, um, but that's what Paul says. He says, pray about everything, not just some things. Someone once said that if you, if you know how to uh, worry, then you know how to pray intensely. Um, Worry when you're consumed with this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing. You give your mind to this thing. Well, just turn that to God. And he gives us a specific outline of how to turn our prayers to God. Um, but pray about everything. Don't just pray about the big stuff. Pray about the small stuff before it becomes the big stuff. Be engaged with God about every concern in your life. If there's something that's gnawing in you that hasn't quite reached to the stress level yet, I swear to you, you better start praying now. Because more than likely it will. By the way, prayer always carries the idea of adoration. And I would just suggest to you the wisdom of this. Um, if you don't spend a significant portion of your prayer life adoring God, then you will never know a God big enough to solve your problems. If you jump right into God, I need God, I need God, I need, and you've never once considered God's ability, his love, and who he is, then you'll be leaving that prayer thing, wringing your hands, going, I hope he answers the bell, I hope he answers the bell, as opposed to going, he's always good. And if you spend time adoring him for who he is, then the rest of this gets easier. He says, supplication, fancy word for asking, fancy word for telling. God, this is it, this is it. I'm a human, I'm limited. This, the distance between you and me is pretty big, um, so I'm just gonna be your kid. I'm just gonna say it. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm feeling right now. He says, with thanksgiving, it's a, always a recognition of the appreciation of what God has done, which confronts the tendency we have not to be grateful. Now, again, go back to verse 7. Look what Paul says happens if we pray like that. He says, the peace of God which surpasses comprehension. <laughs> you know the people who can say this? The people who have every reason to stress and aren't. This, this is the reality. Sometimes we go, the peace that just looks so great, you'd want it, you'd buy it, you'd pay for it, is a peace that's completely connected to circumstantial issues. But if you see somebody who's in the pressure cooker who has this, this is when you say, that makes no sense. It's peace beyond understanding. That's what he promises here. Um, it's interesting what he says here. This, this peace of God will guard, the word is garrisoned, like a, a troop of, of, of army guys in front of a fortress protecting something. God protects, what's it say? Our hearts and our minds. If you want kind of shorthand for your feelings and your thoughts, that's what he promises to guard if you pray. 
Which, to be honest, that's where all this stress comes from. It's when my thoughts run off and my feelings follow. And then I'm left with stress. Hearts where we're totally susceptible to wrong feelings. You're in it and you go, God, I'm alone. God, where are you? This is never going to end. I mean, all those things you're just going to emote. And he says, no, a prayerful heart actually garrisons your heart, your feelings toward, against that. It guards our minds where we're totally susceptible to wrong thinking, that somehow God doesn't answer prayer like I've asked. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't love me. I'll take matters into my own hands, and what I'm left with is worry or control. And uh, both of those wrong feelings, wrong thoughts, he says he will guard that. Now look at verses seven or, or verses eight and nine. Paul finishes with this, and I want to connect this these passages together because sometimes we preach them separately. Don't be anxious, and then we'll come back in a week and we'll talk about this. They're directly connected. This is Paul's new thinking for the stressed mind. Look at verses eight and nine. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I mean, some, I've actually uh, been in sermons where people kind of pick through the words, and I appreciate that. I think there's some depth in it. The word's true. I, I would just suggest to you is what God has said. Truth begins with God. Truth is Jesus Christ. So everything, everything that you were to think about starts with him. So let's just go there. If your thoughts aren't him, then you're thinking wrong thoughts. Let's just start there. He says what's honorable, noble, worthy of respect, just. Those are right thoughts and actions defined by God and his character. Purity, things that aren't infected with evil. Lovely, anything that's beautiful and commendable. That's that conduct spoken highly by others. It's a long list, and I suppose we could just take a week and kind of dig through each word, but I don't think that's the intention of why Paul put it here in this verse. Um, Paul's intention isn't just the list. That's why he continues in verse 8 to say, and by the way, if there's anything excellent, anything else excellent, anything else worth praiseworthy, think about that too. He wasn't trying to create an exhaustive list of things to think so that you can overcome that. He's trying to teach us something about constantly being in the mind of God so that there's no room for worry. If your mind is totally absorbed with good things, lovely things, pure things, commendable things, true things, worthy of praise things, excellent things, I swear to you, if you give your mind to that, you won't have room for stress and worry. It's just true. You get what you think about. And that's his promise here. It's intended to overwhelm our thoughts. And hopefully you see what Paul's getting at here. Don't be anxious about anything. Pray about everything. God's peace will guard your feelings. His peace will guard your thoughts. Saturate your thinking on the great things of God. And here's what will happen. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace, what? Will be with you. It's amazing. Here's what he promises. Overwhelm your thoughts with things of God and you'll experience the presence of God in extraordinary ways. And if you want the total cure to worry, it's the presence of God, right? God is always with us. That is his promise. He never leaves. It's not like when you get 
concerned with things or you forget things or you fail things or you sin things. It's not like he wanders off somewhere and leaves you on your own. He's always with you. But what do you feel when you're stressing? God, where are you? Right? God, deliver. God, fix it. And here's what he says. Here's what he promises. Pray with thanksgiving, thinking right. It makes the presence of God realized in your life. Verses eight and nine simply can be seen as replacement for worry. In, in other words, if, if all he said was, don't worry, church, um, you wouldn't get it. We wouldn't get it. Because worry has to be driven out by something else. It has to be replaced. And if you replace it with the things of God, the truth of God, the, the, the character of God, then there won't be room for stresses. And you notice I said nothing about your circumstances. We get to talk about this next week a little bit when we talk about joy um, in the midst of. So uh, let's pray and thank God for this. Father, I thank you so much for just a simple, profound, applicable um, instruction to not worry. How Jesus told us about you as the, uh, the reason and how we are to seek you and think you and uh, have it push back on the things that stress us. God, I don't want to be simplistic. I don't want to um, look at people who have greater burdens than I do and suggest that it's easy. I know it's not easy. But in you, you've promised a, a peace that surpasses all understanding. So we're praying for that today in Christ's name. Amen.